Well, good morning. We're going to continue our study of Matthew, and as you know, we're up to Matthew chapter 4. Let's just start with, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come again to you to seek for your teaching and for your wisdom and for our own strength to understand your word in the way that you intend us to and to live by it. We pray, Father, that we may not only understand, but that we might somehow absorb the Spirit of Jesus. We know that if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And we are here to try to absorb the Spirit of him whom we love. And we pray, Father, therefore, that you will open our eyes and guide us to understand as you would have us understand and in the right way. And give us, Father, your strength, so that these things might become flesh in us, that the Word might become flesh in us, as it was in the Lord. For his sake. Amen. Well, as you know, in our studies of Matthew, we have tried to be as uh, devotional as possible, as practical and encouraging, etc., as, as one can be. But now we've come to Matthew 4, which is the, the record, as you know, of the, the temptation of the Lord in the wilderness, and we're going to have to be a bit more, as I said, expositional, because that's the nature of it. And it's not my best, uh, my best uh, territory, as it were, but um, it's a bridge we have to cross if we want to get to grips really with the whole text of Matthew, which is what we're doing here week by week. So, Matthew 4, Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And then we have this, this account of the temptation. Now, Hebrews 4.15, the Lord was tempted in all points like as we are. And when we, we read there, like as we are, I think a fair case can be made for saying that he was tempted in the same way. Not only in every point of temptation that we have, but in the same uh, way, with the same process. Why I say that is because in a literalistic sense, the Lord was not tempted at literally every point that we are tempted. I mean, he was not tempted to misuse the internet, for example. So then I would suggest that Hebrews 4.15 should be understood as meaning that he was tempted like as we are, that is not necessarily in every actual point, uh, but in the same basic process. And how are we tempted? James 1.14, each man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust, the King James says, of his own desires, uh, and enticed. And as you know from Mark 7.15, 21-23, Sin comes from within. That temptation is an internal process. Whatever external stimulus there is, the essence of it is within the human mind. Now, the Lord was tempted just like we are. Therefore, those same processes, that same general pattern and course of temptation was within him. So then, when we read here about a devil tempting him, whatever that refers to, this is not absolutely outside or separate from our experience of temptation. And in fact, the language that's used here in Matthew 4 about the temptation is used later on about our temptation. When we read about the tempter coming to the Lord Jesus, First Thessalonians 3 verse 5, Paul talks about the tempter coming the same words to the early, the early church in Thessalonica. So he's saying, you in essence are going through what the Lord went through there. 
Now, I would suggest then that it's impossible to take the account that we have here as a dead literal account of what happened. For example, Matthew 4, verse 8, the Lord is led up into a high mountain from which he can see all the kingdoms of the world in their future glory. This is clearly a vision of the kingdom, just as Moses went up to a high mountain and saw um, the, the, the promised land. Now, there's no mountain high enough from which you can see the whole world. I mean, the, the earth is a sphere. And so it seems to me that this is not literal. This is going on in the mind of Jesus. And as someone who was filled with God's word, it's understandable that the image of Moses going up into the mountain and looking out over the promised land, over the kingdom as it was in his context, Ezekiel also seeing uh, a, a great mountain uh, and seeing a vision of God's kingdom uh, associated with the mountain, these images all came together in the mind of the Lord. Don't forget he was fasting 40 days uh, without eating. And so all these images came together in his mind, just as they might do to us, maybe as you're half awake one night. Uh, and they, they ended up coming up into suggestions that were wrong. And the point is that he overcame them. Now, if you compare the record in Matthew 4 to Luke 4, you'll see that these temptations are recorded in a different order. And Mark says that, uh, Mark, that, that uh, Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days tempted of Satan, as if the whole thing went on uh, during the 40 days temptation. But here in Matthew 4, verses 2 and 3, you read that after he had fasted for 40 days, then these temptations came. So I don't think that you can take them literally because it would seem, putting the records together, that the same temptation occurred more than once. And I don't really think we can imagine him literally scaling the, uh, the pinnacle of the temple with the devil, uh, him and this, this guy, presumably, with, you know, long tail and horns and the rest of it, uh, and doing this several times and nobody noticing. I mean, Josephus says nothing about anything like this. And to climb a mountain high enough to view the whole world, I mean, this is not something done in, uh, done in just a, a couple of hours. This is a major, a major work uh, that would take many days. And, of course, there is no literal mountain high enough from which to see the whole, uh, the whole of the world. And, of course, the height of the mountain is, in a sense, irrelevant to whether you're seeing all these things in the future, in a moment of time. Now... I think Jesus would have probably told the gospel writers of his experience, and he chose, I think, to explain it to them in terms which were actually common at the time, because there's quite a bit of evidence that in rabbinic debate at the time, it was common to use a three-part dialogue, like you've got here, uh, quoting uh, proof texts and scripture, and then rebuffing the argument. And so I would say that this is recorded in terms that people could understand, in terms that people were used to. Especially Matthew's Gospel, it seems to me, is aimed at the Jews. And that's why he talks about the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God. He tries to avoid the use of the word God, etc., uh, to, to not hurt Jewish uh, sensibilities. So I think that this is actually typical rabbinic-style debate. And although it may sound a bit strange for maybe Western European ears hearing this, 
uh, for the first time, or reading it for the first time, actually this style of writing was not unusual in Jewish rabbinic terms in the first century, and it would certainly not have been understood by them as literal, not at all. Now, I don't deny that possibly there was a person involved uh, putting up these ideas to Jesus. That is possible, and I will return to that later. But my point is the essence of temptation is internal. And as you will have noticed, every time there is a temptation, the Lord quotes a verse in the Bible, and that seems to be the victory. Now, in the standard view of Satan, the idea is that Satan hears a verse quoted from the Bible, and he, he like, runs a mile. He gets scared because he hears a verse from the Bible, and he runs away. Well, that seems to me a very primitive, simplistic idea. That only drives the question a stage further back, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, you say that Satan is such a being that he hears the Bible quoted, and the guy, like, legs it, he, he runs. Why would he do that? Why? If, on the other hand, we're told Satan has no respect for God's word and so forth. It, it doesn't make any sense that, oh, yeah, just quote a Bible verse and this fellow runs off, and I'm, I'm good. No. It makes far more sense to me, at least, and I'm quite open to the possibility of different interpretations on, on, on this. I'm just sharing with you how I see it. It makes a lot more sense to me if this is talking about an internal struggle within the mind of the Lord. Because, Psalm 119.11, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. In the internal struggle that we have against temptation, that is where, in that context, that is where quoting God's word does lead to spiritual victory against temptation. As I say, to put all this in physical terms that there's a, a guy there or somebody there called the devil or Satan, and you quote a Bible verse and that's it, you won. No, no, no. Life, I wish life were that simple. But we all know it isn't. And we all, we're all experienced sinners, unfortunately. Uh, and we all know the process of temptation, do we not? And the power of God's word within the human mind. <clears throat> We're told that the devil left him for a season. At the end of the temptation records, it says that. The devil left him for a season. That is for a period. Implying that it returned. And when you look at these three temptations, they all do recur within the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And always the, the tempter is the Jewish people. So, for example, do a miracle. Prove yourself. This comes time and again in the, miracle, in, the, in the ministry of the Lord. And especially on the cross. The whole temptation, come down from the cross, is actually recorded in the same terms as the devil saying here, jump off the temple. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Why not? If you're the son of God, you can do it. The whole idea of putting God to the test. I mean, this came intensely to its final... Uh, to, to its final moment in, in, in the experience of the Lord on the cross. And again and again, it was at the hands of the Jews. So I think, there that the, I think therefore that the, the devil and Satan, very often in the New Testament, not always, but quite often, is referring to the, what I would call the Jewish Satan, the Jewish adversary. I mean, who on the ground was the great enemy to the Lord's work and ministry, and who ultimately put him to death. It was the Jews. 
who was the great uh, enemy of Paul's missionary work in the first century, it was uh, the Jewish Satan, that a group of false brethren, as he says in Galatians 2.5, unawares brought in. So they were the great adversary. And it's interesting that the, the Gospels go on to call Peter a Satan and Judas uh, a devil, uh, both in the context of them trying to uh, stop Jesus dying on the cross and getting the kingdom for himself there and then. The great temptation for the Lord was to, to bypass the cross and to, to take the easy way. And that is obviously our uh, temptation. Give me an easy path to the kingdom. Give me a, a, a bypass. Give me a way out of facing up to, to temptation and issues as they really are. Now, it's been observed that in the Synoptic Gospels, as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a lot of material that, at first blush, is not in John. But looking a bit closer, you do see that actually a lot of the material that he, John appears to have missed out is actually there in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's just putting it in more spiritual terms. Okay. Uh, the classic one would be the record of the birth of Jesus. You've got that in Matthew and Luke very clear. You know, Jesus born in the stable. The genealogies introduce him as the son of David, the son of Abraham, etc. And then he's born. John puts that in totally different language. In the beginning, there was a word. There was a, a logos, a purpose, and that word became flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus. That's his way of describing the Lord's birth and the whole virgin birth and so forth but he uses spiritual language. The command to go and be baptized, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Well, you don't apparently get that in John, but you do. It's just, it's put in different ways. John 3, you must be born of water and of the Spirit, or else you will not enter the kingdom. If I don't wash you, the Lord says in John to Peter, then you have no part with me. There's a whole load of these things, so you can look at what the Gospels record, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you come to John, first blush, it seems now he's left that out, and then looking a bit closer, yeah, it's there, but it's in more spiritual terms. <clears throat> that is true also, by the way, of the Great Commission, to go into all the world and preach the Gospel. But we, for, for this uh, purpose, I want to say that apparently John's Gospel doesn't record the wilderness temptations. And apparently it doesn't. But I suggest that, again, in essence, he does refer to these temptations, and it's in John 6, where yeah, he puts it in a different way. The Jewish crowd in John 6.15, they come, they want to make Jesus a king. Just like Satan, you know what I mean, Satan in the, you know, in, in the, uh, between the commas, uh, Satan wants to offer him the kingship of, uh, of the kingdom, right then, without the cross. The Jews then ask him for bread. Show us a sign. If you are the Messiah, show us the bread from heaven. John 6.31. This is exactly in the wilderness. Turn those stones into bread. The disciples want to go to Jerusalem with Jesus, and they want Jesus to go up to Jerusalem to show his power in Jerusalem. Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem and says, go on, show us your power. Jump off the temple. And to jump off the temple, um, <clears throat> or to, to stand on the roof of the temple, according to the uh, uh, 
Pesita uh, Rabaki, that's uh, part of the, the Jewish rabbinical writings of the time, uh, that was what the Messiah was supposed to do. From uh, section 36 of the Pesita Rabaki, when the king, the Messiah, reveals himself, he will come and stand on the roof of the temple. So his temptation was to show himself as Messiah in Jewish terms, in the terms that they were used to, in the terms that they could cope with. And he chose not to, because he knew that ultimately he had to die, that that was the salvation of the world, not simply taking the easy way out. And, you know, we can go into all this in, in great detail, but the bottom line is that he was tempted as we are. And our temptations in the heat of the, the moment, and temptation seems to me to happen in a split second, uh, it's very quick and it's over and done almost before you, before you realize it, uh, it is the same, to take the quick way. I don't need discipline. I don't need to pray every day. I don't need to read the Bible every day. I'm going to be okay. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Feels good, I'm going to do it. Ah, oh, that's still the way to the kingdom. I'll get there in the end. No, no, no. This is the essence of the wilderness temptation. And to, to be what others want us to be. The Satan and Peter and Judas, etc., they wanted a kingdom there and then. They wanted the kingdom as they understood it. And that again is our temptation, is it not? To be what others want us to be and to act as others want us to act, and to, to be the persons that we sense they would like us to be. And actually we're very smart at perceiving pretty quickly what others want us to be. And this was the Lord's temptation in the wilderness. Now, it's pretty clear that there is a purposeful uh, similarity between the temptation of the Lord Jesus in the wilderness and the temptation of Israel in the wilderness. You realize that the word temptation literally means a testing. So, they were 40 years tested in the desert. Jesus was 40 days tested. They were led by an angel. And we've read here in Matthew 4 that Jesus was led of the Spirit. God makes his angels spirits. And afterwards, angels came and ministered unto him. So angels were involved in the whole situation. And they were suffered to hunger, we're told in Deuteronomy, so that they might trust in God. Jesus also suffered. He was there, we're told in Mark, with the wild beasts. Moses reflects on their wilderness journey and says that it was a terrible place, and he talks about the wild animals that were there. It wasn't just, you know, Sahara-style sand. There were wild animals out there in, in the desert. Now, Jesus, I think, thought himself into the situation. And the answers that he gives are all from Deuteronomy. Uh, two of his answers are from uh, Deuteronomy 8 uh, and one from Deuteronomy 6. Well, why, why, does he, uh, why does he just use a very narrow part of the scriptures? with which to answer these temptations. I think it's because he felt himself into the situation. He felt that, yes, this is me. Them there in the wilderness 40, 40 years, this is me. I've been here for 40 days, and yeah, this is exactly the same. 
Deuteronomy 8.2 The Lord your God led you 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to prove you and to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he would have understood that I'm being led 40 days in the wilderness for the same reason. Then Deuteronomy 8.3 He humbled you and suffered you to hunger and fed you with manna that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8 goes on, You shall also consider in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God is chastening you. And the Lord would have understood that, that this uh, similarity with the situation of Israel in the wilderness was what gave meaning to his experience. It seems to me that God has structured human life and human experience and human temptation in such a way so that it is actually it is actually repeating situations that have already happened in, in Bible times. Why does he do that? It's so that in the heat of temptation you are not alone. So that for those who love God's word, you see that this is deja vu, that this has already been seen. And of course there is a temptation for all of us to assume that I am I am radically alone in this world that nobody actually has been down my path before, that this is virgin territory. And we maybe rather like that idea. But actually, no. God has structured human life, like I say. He's structured human life in such a way that, no, in essence it has happened. And this is where familiarity with the text of the Bible is so important. You may read the scriptures daily and sometimes think, I don't know why I bother, because I don't get it. It doesn't seem to say anything to me. But I think that as experience of life goes on, then it does. Then you do come to see and perceive that, yes, this is me. That the essence of what, I don't know, Mary went through, when the angel came and, uh, and you know, came into her life and, and turned it all around, and yet that happened to me. Well, I don't mean I had a virgin birth or anything, but you know what I'm saying. Um, maybe she wasn't the best example, but you, you know what I'm saying. That there are situations in life where suddenly you, you perceive, wow, somebody went through this before. And this was what happened to Jesus in the wilderness. But he, he felt himself into the situation, and he realized that, yes, this is all set up by the Father, to help me to realize that, yeah, this all speaks to me. This is personalizing scripture. This is where, uh, as the New Testament writers say several times, the Old Testament scriptures speak to me. They speak to us. It's a living word. And this is the difference between biblical history uh, and uh, just history as it is. That biblical history has a purpose, and that purpose of its recording, of its choice, of the way it's been recorded, is to speak to us in this age, and to speak to us personally in specific situations that, that we encounter. So then, it's not just so simple that, ah, if you know the Bible, then you can quote the Bible, quote a Bible verse, and you're good. No, no, that, that's far too simplistic. That would be far too simplistic to think that, that uh, strength against temptation depends on uh, simply knowing the Bible. That, that has been said, and people have come away disappointed. Because they read the Bible, and I, I still sin, and I still fail, and in a split second I still fail. 
It's not simply knowing the text. The sense is that we must feel ourselves into that situation and to realize that man is not alone in this world. But actually, the whole thing is structured to play out certain principles and situations and setups that God in his wisdom has, has used with men and women all down the years, all down the millennia of his interaction and relationship with people. <clears throat> so then, Jesus had just been baptized by John. We read that in chapter 3. And now he's got, it seems, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so he's being tempted to misuse that. And so that, again, would add weight, I think, to my, my sense that this is all talking about um, internal struggle within the mind of, of the Lord Jesus. Now, the whole idea of being able to uh, take the kingdom for himself, he saw the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time. Uh, <clears throat> the devil, even if the devil exists as a person, would not have had the power to give that, because yours is the kingdom. Thine is the kingdom, power and the glory. That the kingdom is ultimately God's. And you remember, Revelation 11, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And Daniel 2, the little stone hits the image, destroys it, becomes a great mountain, and so forth. The kingdoms of this world belong to God, and Jesus knew that. So then, <clears throat> when this devil suggests to him <clears throat> that go on, take it for yourself right now, well, really that wouldn't have been much temptation if some guy just turned up and said, hey Jesus, you want a kingdom? I'll give it to you. Well, the temptation had no credibility. But if this is within the mind of the Lord, that he, as the one who was intended to be the king of that future kingdom, if he were to think, yeah, I could grab that for myself right now, yeah, then I think the temptation has far more meaning and, uh, and far greater teeth to it, uh, as, as it were, and it's far more imaginable as going on within the mind of, of the Lord. If you are the Son of God, do this or do that. Now, that was, I suppose, a unique temptation to Jesus, because he was the only begotten Son of God. God had not begotten any other child at any point. And there he was, he grew up as an ordinary human being, and according to Luke's genealogy, uh, he was reckoned as the son of Joseph, and that means reckoned by law. I mean, the Greek word means reckoned by law. So then he was seen as the son of Joseph, but under a big question mark, and yeah, we know his mum, <clears throat> well, anyway, we won't go there, but uh, yeah, well, she got pregnant, and okay, you know, uh, uh, so on and so forth. That's why they mock him, the Jews mock him like, who's your father? Uh, God, huh? <laughs> you know? Um, if you are the son of God, and I think you can make a fair case that Mary, although I think she'll be saved ultimately, I, I think she went through a midlife crisis of faith. And uh, throughout the Gospels you see this, this tension between her and her son. So I think she probably thought, yeah, that was a bit of a weird trip 30 years ago. 
Um, I don't know what kind of what happened, but yeah, I mean, I did end up pregnant, but uh, there we are. Um, it would, I think, have been for the Lord Jesus a niggling doubt. Is this all true? Just as, you know, to be honest, we all have that niggling doubt, do we not? Is this all true? Is it really so that I am God's special son? That I am God's special creation that, that is there a God up there? You know? And yes, of course, these may be just for a moment, but I, I don't think anyone's got a real faith who has not been through those niggles, uh, and maybe more than niggles at times. And so it's quite normal that the Lord Jesus would have this question, am I really? The Son of God. I mean, what is all this talk that my mum gave me when I was a kid that an angel came to her and got her pregnant? I mean, as if. You know? Um, are you the only person in the whole planet who's like this? And of course, the fact that at 30 years of age, when he starts preaching and basically says, admittedly indirectly, I'm the Son of God and I'm the Messiah, people say, no, you're not, buddy. We know who you are. We know your brothers and sisters. You are a carpenter from Nazareth, and we know your father, and Joseph that is, and uh, like, who do you think you are? In other words, what that implies is that until the age of 30, he did not appear anyone unduly special. Otherwise there would not have been that psychological reaction, when at age 30 he stands up in the, in the synagogue and basically says, guys, I'm Messiah, I'm the one. They said, hey, you can't be. And by the way, that, that I think is a beautiful insight into the nature of perfection. Because the Lord Jesus was perfect in character. He never committed any sin and he never omitted to do righteousness because sin can also be sin of omission. And he lived that perfect life of perfect commission of righteousness and total omission of sin and not omitting to do any righteousness. He lived that perfect life and the beauty and the wonder of it all. And I love this was that nobody noticed. Now as soon as you and I try to be a fraction more righteous than the bloke next to us, they start telling us, you know, they, they mind it, like they don't like it, they notice it. But with him, he was so perfect that people didn't even notice. And I love that. Now, where this leads me to, though, is my point, that because he seemed so ordinary, because he got colds and got the flu and sneezed and scratched and, and all the rest of it, um, he must have had this question, am I really the Son of God? I seem pretty human. And here in the, in the wilderness, that was tested. And he overcomes it. Now, <clears throat> Israel likewise, of course, had that same sense. Am I really the Son of God? Uh, am I really God's special people? Am I not just another nation like the nations around? And in the end, they failed that test and they assumed that, yes, I am just the same as any other old nation. Just the same with us. You know, you're standing in a line of people, maybe at a supermarket checkout, and you look at yourself in the mirror, if there's a mirror there, and you look at all these other people, and I mean, we wear the same clothes, smell roughly the same or worse. Uh, we, say, we, we look the same, we speak the same language, we, we talk in the same way, we buy the same sort of food, we wear the same kind of clothes, we suffer with the same kind of problems, the same kind of health issues, same problems with your car, and so on and so forth. And at times you can wonder, am I the Son of God? Am I anything special? And this is the temptation of the Lord so gloriously overcame. Now, I have said that 
the uh, account of the temptation, although it might seem unusual uh, maybe to European 21st century readers, is in fact completely normal uh, within the context of rabbinic debate. And there's a lot of uh, references to these what they call show debates as a way of explaining a point. And if you look at my book, The Real Devil, uh, in chapter 5, I, I reference all this stuff, and I won't go into it now, but um, you can see all the academic references there quite, quite clearly. And also references to Jewish uh, Midrash on Old Testament uh, incidents. Midrash is like a, a commentary, extended commentary. Um, Moses, for example, is described as having a, a triple dialogue, a three-stage dialogue with an angel uh, about his death, about whether or not he should die. And that's in uh, the uh, Deuteronomy Rabbah, that is the uh, commentary on, uh, on Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy there. So, as I say, for us, this may be a very strange uh, section of scripture, but I don't think it was so strange to first century Palestinian uh, Jewish ears. And yet all the same, why do we have th this very strong uh, sense that there's another person here? Now, it's okay talking about personification, but it's a pretty strong personification, is it not, of this uh, other side of Jesus within his mind. Why is the personification so strong, and the language so clear that uh, there appears to be uh, another person there with him. Well, I have a friend here in Riga, a very talented guy, uh, who is a psychotherapist, and I, I talked with him uh, about this, uh, th th this passage, and I asked him for his psychological insight on, on this. And uh, Arturo explained to me that what struck him reading the passage, and he doesn't claim to be a Bible student, the guy's a psychotherapist, not, not a Bible student, um, what, what struck him very strongly uh, reading the passage was that there's a very great distance between Jesus and the, the self, his other self, that he's seeking to analyze. And he said that in his opinion, uh, Arthur's opinion, the greater the distance there is between you as the observer of yourself and the self, the part of yourself that you're analyzing, that is really, you know, the greater the distance there, the, the, the deeper, the stronger the personification that you, you manage in looking at yourself from outside of yourself, that the more mature and the more balanced a person is. So many people in their self-talk, and we all have self-talk, don't think that you're crazy because you have self-talk, we, we all have self-talk. Many people in their self-talk are extremely vague. And particularly when it comes to engaging with themselves, the dialogue with themselves, it's all very muddled and fuzzy, and the boundaries are very fuzzy. But Jesus was the man ultimately in touch with himself. And as he tells the Gospel writers what happened, yes, he is using a rabbinic style. I, I don't doubt that. The evidence is pretty strong on that point. So you can see the references in, in chapter 5 of uh, Real Devil. Um, but I think also, psychologically, what this indicates is that here is the man ultimately in touch with himself who can speak to himself in such clear terms. There's another example of it in the Bible. 
well, there's several examples, but one clear one is Paul in Romans 7. This is why interpreting that passage is such a headache for a lot of people, where Paul appears to say totally contradictory things about himself. And I think it's because he sees very clearly the two Pauls. He, like Jesus, has clearly, uh, he's clearly in touch with himself. And in his self-examination, he can place this distance between himself and the, the person, the other Paul, that he's analysing, that he's engaging with in his self-examination. So then I think that the Lord Jesus quite clearly was, was like that. And so, <clears throat> I believe then that he comes out of all this victorious and that it's very much uh, his own struggle with his own self-doubt. One comfort that we take from this is that Jesus never sinned, right? Uh, and yet, experiencing the process of temptation is not sinful. You can have all these thoughts. You can go to the, you know, up the, up the pinnacle of the temple in your own mind, and yet not sin. And again, if you have not got a clear, uh, if you're not clearly in touch with yourself, then you will maybe not perceive that. You will start worrying that, oh, I've sinned when actually it's the process of temptation. Now, of course, there is a line, and that line is wafer thin at times. That line is not even millimeters. That is micro-millimeters uh, thin, or thick, uh, at times, between temptation and sin. I understand that. What I'm saying is that we can miss that point, and there are people who, who struggle and beat themselves up terribly over what they perceive to be sin in themselves, which is actually still temptation. But because the Lord Jesus was so in touch with himself, he didn't have that sense at all. He knew where sin was and where temptation was. Now, in Matthew's record, you see the Lord starting off um, looking at um, stones uh, on the ground. Then he goes a bit higher onto the uh, pinnacle of the temple, and then he ends up even higher on the, uh, on the, uh, the top of the, the highest mountain. I think that's significant, because in Philippians 2, we're told that the Lord Jesus overcame, overcame the temptation to be as God and to commit Adam's sin, which was to try to uh, pretend to God, to rise up to, to play God. And instead of uh, lifting himself up progressively to be as God, instead, Philippians 2 talks about a sevenfold stage of humiliation, of bringing himself down, culminating in death, even the death of the cross, as Paul puts it. And then he talks about a seven-stage exaltation. And I think that he has this temptation record in mind. What he's saying is, yeah, the Lord considered lifting himself up and up and up to be like God, to decide that he can have the kingdom for himself as he wants, without the cross. But no, he didn't. Instead, he brought himself down. And because of that, he was lifted up.
Now, I, I've said that I said at the beginning that it is possible that it is possible that another person was involved. Uh, I, I don't see it as necessary, and I mention this almost as a concession to those who are uh, maybe not as persuaded as, as I am that this was a, a purely internal. Uh, temptation of the Lord and that he is consciously using personification. There are some who can't quite accept that uh, and who say, no, no, it really does sound like there was a person there. Well, every other temptation of the Lord in the Gospels is always at the hands of, of the Jews. And, of course, the, the Lord was in the, in the wilderness of southern Israel, and that would have been very near to where the Essenes were, these uh, people who, it seems, are associated with, with John the Baptist. And so it's quite possible that there was somebody present who was of a strongly uh, Jewish background who was putting Jesus to, to the test. Now, in fact, the tempter, when it says the tempter came to him, and the tempter said this, that, and the other, there is a reference that I put there in my book, Real Devil, Chapter 5, that the Essene community were looking for Messiah, and that they had an individual whose job it was to check out, to check out people who claimed to be Messiah. And this guy was called the tempter. The tempter. Now, that is very interesting, and yes, it could be that this tempter here was that person. Now, I've made it clear that I really think this is all a huge personification, but I must admit, when I came across that fact, and I, I made a point of reference it in my, in my book, and you, you can look out the reference and, and find a reference there in the scene material, uh, I mean, that's, I must admit that, that that's a pretty, pretty strong point. Um, but whether or not, the point is we also have temptation sometimes that is personified in a person, uh, and sometimes it is purely internal. The, the channel is not important. The essence is important, and the essence is that God's word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Thank you.